Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. With an interest in the expressive capabilities of sound, composer Stephen Snowden's work includes acoustic and electroacoustic music, sound collage, live electronic improvisation, interactive multimedia installations, and many things in between. Drawing on memory, nostalgia, and the cyclic nature of history, Stephen's work is grounded in human perspective. With deep roots in American folk, bluegrass, and rock music, his work seems to me to spring forth as a freshly invented American sound. A native of the Ozarks, he is currently based in Austin, Texas, where he works as a freelance composer. He's also the co-founder and co-director of the Fast Forward Austin Music Festival. Stephen, I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Hi, John. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So I always like to start these discussions with a bit of background. And over the last couple of episodes, I've been interested to ask my guests if they could pinpoint a specific moment when maybe you realized that you needed and or wanted to respond creatively to the world around you. And I'll leave that open-ended. Feel free to take that thread wherever you'd like. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I kind of had uh, um, a, a different thing in mind with uh, sort of my kind of uh, musical id, I guess, in a way. Um, but, you know, when you put it that way, I think it might actually be um, Frank Zappa's album with uh, Ensemble Modern, The Yellow Shark, yeah. actually. Um, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I got into uh, music originally in uh, junior high. I was in a rock band, and I sang and played guitar, and I wanted to basically be in a rock band to impress girls. Um, and aside from that, I liked music and I grew up listening to, uh, Led Zeppelin and, uh, Allman Brothers and Leonard Skinner, Pink Floyd, that kind of thing. Um, my dad works in construction and I would work with him on the job site a lot. And we just, we listen to classic rock all the time. Um, and I found myself preferring things that were a bit on the strange side. So, um, uh, you know, like Pink Floyd was always kind of an interesting thing for me, but I liked Frank Zappa a lot too. And I wanted to learn more about Zappa. And I just happened to pick up this CD in, uh, in like a used CD store, um, the yellow shark. And when I listened to that, I realized that there was a lot more to it. Like musically, there was a lot more territory to, to explore. Um, because sonically it was just so interesting. I hadn't really listen much to, to classical music. And so to hear uh, an orchestra, especially one of, of this caliber, uh, like a chamber orchestra, doing these, you know, some songs that I knew before, like uh, Uncle Meat or G-Spot Tornado, things like that. Um, but then also his sort of modern compositions, which you now I listen to them and maybe they don't stand up uh, quite as well as, as other things that I've heard in that kind of style. I mean, I, I always preferred his... Um, stuff that he did with his rock band, but to hear that with an orchestra um, and all of this orchestration that was going on, it just seemed like this very um, colorful thing. And I thought, I want to learn how to do that, or I want to be a part of that in some way. Um, so I didn't start out composing. I, I started out playing horn. I'm, I'm a French horn player. Um, and I didn't really learn to read music until I was about 15 or 16. Um, I sang in the choir in high school, played horn in the band. It was very small. I was the only horn player when I started out. That's the reason I picked it because I figured I'd be really bad and the band director wouldn't pick on me. He'd pick on like the flutes, the trumpets, because there were more of them. And, uh, from there I just kind of kept at it and, um, went to college. The only reason I went to college in the first place was to just learn about more about music. And when I was, 20 or 21, uh, I wrote my first um, piece for horn and piano that was just this mishmash of extended techniques because I wanted to make weird sounds on the horn and I wanted to write something for my uh, studio class um, to play for them where I was, you know, doing multiphonics or different kinds of mutes or taking slides out or just being very experimental. And I didn't realize that that was already a thing that people did that. I couldn't, we had a small music library, I couldn't find any. Uh, um, stuff that uh, um, had a lot of that in it. Um, so, uh, yeah, from there, I just, I mean, the piece was terrible, um, but I had a lot of fun doing it, and I just kept at it and just kept writing music. So for me, the it's been a lot more of a 
process for me to get into like Mozart or Haydn or um, I'm sort of working my way towards the classical period where I'm getting more familiar with and more interested in that kind of music. For me, the initial stuff that was interesting to me was more uh, modern music, really. Um, so, uh, and, and now I'm, I'm, I'm getting to know more and more about the classical tradition now that I've been through school for a while. I've, I've spent a lot of time in school and kind of traditional um, kind of conservatory education and all that. But uh, yeah, really for me, I think it comes down to Frank Zappa. I think he was kind of the gateway drug. Great. And, and so now that you've um, you spent all this, so after Zappa, and then who are, the, who are the composers that in those early years you mentioned you were more interested in contemporary music, but wh- wh- what composers specifically were you kind of um, into in, in that time? Um, I would say like uh, Peter Maxwell Davies, um, Hindemith, mostly Hindemith because I played the Hindemith horn sonata my senior year of high school, and it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. I had to memorize it. Um, so I've always had a big soft spot for Hindemith. Um, James McMillan. Um, I heard Confession of Isabel Gowdy when I was uh, in my undergrad, I think, and it just blew my mind. Yeah, from there, I guess I got to learn a bit more about like uh, more American music. I guess I've, I named a couple of Brits there, but um, uh, I mean, I guess you know, like Steve Reich. I, I was never all that into Philip Glass necessarily. Um, but uh, I don't know, a lot of the stuff that had more of that um, feel that was a bit more like Zappa, I guess, where it's experimental, but it's rhythmically driving. That was always the thing that got to me. I mean, like my favorite band when I was in high school was probably Pantera. I mean, I listened to Cowboys from Hell. <laughs> I can't even tell you how many times. Yeah. And that kind of like just rhythmic drive and aggression. I love hearing that sort of thing in um, uh, in modern, in, in music for like classical instruments. And my music doesn't often turn out that way. Sometimes it does, but a lot of times it's, it's sounds completely different, but that's kind of what initially drew me into that world. Yeah. I I think uh, a lot of my friends would be surprised to know, I mean, a lot of my friends now, you know, since I've been in through graduate school and, and a sort of a professional would be surprised to know that, yeah, like Pantera, Metallica, Megadeth, you know, Slayer, all of that, all (laughs) of that sort of heavy metal from the late eighties and into the early to mid nineties was just, hugely influential i think on a lot of us that ended up being professional musicians because that was sort of a golden era of yeah. that, that kind of uh that kind of thing definitely yeah and actually dream theater was a big one for me too when i was sure. in high school um sure. i just got i got into this sort of prog rock stuff um or like early um genesis um i don't know i was just i was always looking for for things that were kind of pushing boundaries and a lot of times that meant um, music that was, uh, you know, it, maybe even from the, like the jazz world, I was listening to a lot of like Dave Holland quintet and that sort of thing. So, I mean, it would be pretty typical for me in like high school or my undergrad to have, you know, if I had four or five CDs in my car, I'd probably have Dave Holland quintet, probably Pantera, Dream Theater, um, Chick Corea. Um, so I don't know, yeah. it's kind of a, kind of a mix. No, I think then it's great that that eclectic mix is, is really interesting. And so I'm kind of curious to know where, where does this American folk music and the bluegrass, uh, when does that stuff come about for you? Because it seems to me that you draw pretty heavily on that, or, or at least recently in these pieces that we're going to talk about here. Um, it seems like that's a, a big influence on you lately. Yeah, um, I think part of it is, part of it's like the storytelling tradition that's involved with that. So, I mean, musically, I grew up in in an area where bluegrass and country um, was kind of the predominant style of music. And I I listened to a lot of that stuff or like even honky tonk or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've heard a lot of that growing up. And probably when I was a kid, I always thought like, oh, that's kind of lame. Where's the heavy metal guitar? Like that's what I wanted to hear, you know. Um, But uh, I've gotten more into that now. So like going back and listen to like uh, Bill Monroe um, or some of these, uh, you know, older uh, like bluegrass artists, um, the – the, and, and styles of singing as well, like folk singing is really fascinating to me because it's very personalized and it's always different. But I think one of the things that the, maybe the biggest influence on that in my music in the past couple of years is this idea of storytelling. I mean, these uh, um, like folk songs, that's that's uh, one of their primary functions is, you know, the music is there to help kind of propel a story of some kind. Um, and I was gravitating towards it without even realizing it, I think, for for a long time. And uh, at some point, 
uh, I just kind of stepped back and took a look and I was thinking like, okay, do I have a style? Do I have a voice? Because, um, I mean, you know, artists will think about that sometimes. Like, what's my voice? And I was like looking at my pieces and I was like, huh, almost everything is about like the past in some way and about storytelling. So even pieces, uh, I do a lot of things that involve field recordings in some way, but uh, even pieces that don't use field recordings, it's almost always inspired by the past. And I like this idea of... Um, history as something that we should keep in mind when we make decisions about the future because it's there is like a sort of cyclical uh nature to all this um stuff and i mean we have you know as humans we have a tendency to just repeat mistakes over and over again um but i think it's interesting to go back and take a look at uh at that and it's not any one particular period um or anything it's just i don't know i'm always kind of looking at the past for inspiration uh for music that i'm going to write in the future yeah, and and I I hear that in your music as well that uh, that sense of history and and that's one of the things I think that drew me um, to this uh, to your music in the first place. So this might be a perfect pivot point to then diving into some of your work. Uh, so I want to tell a, a quick story about how I found your music. I was doing some research. I'm putting together a solo recital this spring, and I wanted to have some new pieces and. Um, I was specifically looking for pieces that used uh, text in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I, I commissioned some works recently, so I've got some of those, but not all of them. So I needed to fill out the program and I was just, I really wanted to get some new uh, new music. And so <clears throat> just as I do, go on the search and, and find different things. And I found uh, these videos by an outstanding young percussionist, uh, whom you should all know. His name is Victor Pons. And so Victor made a video of your piece called Long Distance, which is for marimba, vibraphone, with electronics. And maybe we can talk about that in a a moment. But Mm -hmm. uh, Victor, really great performance. And then I also uh, happened upon the the Line Upon Line percussion group recording Mm -hmm. of your piece called A Man With A Gun Lives Here, which is just a hauntingly fascinating piece. And so I was I was hooked on your percussion music. So then, you know, I started digging deeper and discovered this affinity that you have for field recordings and kind of found ephemera, audio ephemera, that uh, that give, as you said, this air of kind of history or nostalgia in a way that's that's really interesting. And and I also, of course, appreciate your connection with the folk and bluegrass music, especially you know, sort of you being from that that area. At any rate, perhaps as a way to kind of start getting into some of this stuff, let's look at this piece that you're working on right now uh, called Voices from the Dust Bowl. Maybe you can describe that piece and tell us how it uh, came about. Yeah, definitely. Um, Well, this is a piece written for um, Fifth House uh, Ensemble in Chicago, and uh, they've played a couple of pieces of mine before, and um, I actually haven't met any of the performers still yet, but we've communicated a lot online. Um, but uh, the commission for this piece was actually funded through New Music USA. Um, they uh, got a hold of me after playing a couple of things and said, you know, we'd love to commission something sometime. And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. And, you know, usually uh, either it takes a very long time for that sort of thing to come about or it never does. And that's you know, that's fine, too. Um, but uh, a few weeks before the deadline or maybe a couple of weeks, they were like, OK, what do you what do you want to do? And I thought, I have no idea. Let me uh, look around a little bit. And um, I was, at the time, I was working on a piece for uh, commissioned by um, the Aeolus, Aeolus String Quartet in New York and um, uh, Groundworks Dance Theater in Cleveland, uh, a piece for string quartet, um, a live string quartet and, uh, and modern dance. And uh, and it was based on the Civil War. It was based on like letters and photographs and things like that. And it was in this huge uh, Library of Congress archive that's online. And so I started looking at other archives and I found this one, Voices from the Dust, Dust Bowl. And I thought, this is pretty outstanding. I thought, I, I you know, odds are we're not going to get this grant, but I'll, I'll probably dig into this for something because it's just such a great collection. Um, so just wrote up a grant proposal and lo and behold, um, it, it worked out. We got very lucky. So, uh, yeah, this um, archive is, um, is called Voices from the Dust Bowl, and uh, it consists of um, mostly audio recordings. There are some photographs, but there are 
361 audio recordings of um, people who were living in migrant worker camps in California in 1940 and 1941. And these are people, basically the Okies, the people who left their farms in northern Texas or in Oklahoma, uh, some were even from Kansas or parts of Missouri, that, uh, you know, their farms had dried up. Uh, there was nothing left. They had you know, lost family members to dust ammonia. Or, I mean, it was just this horrible situation. And they all went to California looking for work, and there was no work in California. So you had this massive influx of, uh, of uh, immigrants, basically. Couldn't make a living for your family back in Oklahoma. No, sir. So you had to go someplace where there was work. That's right. We're in my home at the Shafter Magator labor camp. Do anything they could to make quarter, fifty cents. That was at Sippy, Oklahoma. Hold your lobby car, something like that, that hold garbage. Work yards. Just trying to get by. Have you lived in a government camp before? No, we did. Yes, what was it back in Oklahoma? What was the reason why that you left there and came to California? Well, I didn't have any home. So finally, family and I decided to move into the migratory camp at Shasta, California. I think it's interesting as it relates to this too, like as a sort of brief caveat, uh, in, in researching and reading about this, I found that um, the LAPD actually enforced, they closed the borders to California in order to keep the Okies out because they they were uh, they didn't want all these like this influx of of homeless people and people that were going to come in and take their jobs and all that and I think that's really interesting as it relates to current events and um, and I mean this has been an ongoing thing this idea of immigration but in this case it was immigration within the United States but people were still like trying to close borders off to keep others out out of fear that they would you know lose jobs or or that sort of thing so I thought that was kind of um, interesting but um, these interviews were um, done by um, well, I can uh, maybe send you a link to this, uh, Sonkin, and uh, I can't remember the other person, but um, they had, they actually recorded onto vinyl. Um, so I think it was a 78 um, RPM uh, records. They would record directly onto records. Um, and they would just go to people's um, tents. So that a lot of these were basically concrete slabs with tents on them, and people lived there. The government set up these camps so that they had somewhere to live and would give them a little bit of food. It was still pretty rough conditions. Um, and uh, as part of the um, sort of the government help, helping to kind of create jobs during the Depression, they had hired people to go take photographs and to do these audio recordings. And so they recorded people telling their stories about their um, their lives in Oklahoma or their trip to California or the current conditions or even like racial tensions uh, among like uh, Mexican immigrants versus the um, Okies. So it's a really fascinating archive. Um, a lot of them would sing songs, sing folk songs. That was a lot of it, too. When we get the better things of life, we will appreciate them more. It's because there's 17 or 1,800 of you people out there are behind the 17 or 18 councilmen. Farmerville didn't have to take the crack at you. They just give you a black eye. They gave me one right along with you. And it was dirty. It was real dirty. We won't go to the FSA office here in Visalia. If we take it, we'll carry it to Washington, D.C. And ladies and gentlemen, we won't have to take no for an answer when we all together. So I, I listened to all of these recordings, um, which were about, most of them were about five minutes a piece, but it was still a lot of time, you know, 361 recordings. Um, and I would listen to each one, take notes of what it was about, and then just kind of keep track of that um, to use in the piece itself. But uh, it was really heavy because this is people, you know, this was, these are recordings of people uh, at probably the lowest point in their lives. And they had, um, you know, they had lost their farms to, um, to drought. There were these dust storms that would black out the sun. They've lost family members to like 
dust inhalation, dust pneumonia. There's one woman who talked about they had cattle on their farm, and after one of the dust storms went through, the, all the cattle were dead, and they went and uh, um, she and her father went and cut the lungs open of the cows, and it was yeah. just full of mud. And we had cattle. We had cows that we gave $60 and some $90. It killed them. They was out in there. And uh, we uh, would cut their lungs open. It cut their lungs open. It looked just like a mud pack or something. It just really showed it was the lungs. Um, but uh, so it, it was just, it was, it was very striking and very heavy in a way. And so I found with this piece in particular, I've used field recordings in a lot of other pieces. And um, in some ways I might, like in long distance, I'm not, you know, I, I chopped those recordings up. Those are all recordings of payphones from the 1970s. And it's interesting, but it's not like serious, heavy stuff. So I feel fine, like just chopping it in little pieces and doing interesting musical things with it. And, and it works for that. It's even kind of a, a humorous piece. Um, with this one, I, I found that, um, I, I sort of de developed a kind of, a kind of reverence for the recordings, I guess, in a way, because the story that was being told was, I felt very important. And I didn't want this to just be like fodder for a new composition. I thought there was a kind of openness and vulnerability to them. And I felt like putting them in a musical context required like a pretty delicate balance. I wanted to make these these recordings basically the, the main feature of the piece itself. Um, and then there is, there's a sort of musical atmosphere to it. And there are times at which, you know, the, uh, the ensemble, so this is a 10 or 11 piece ensemble. Um, there's times in which, you know, they kind of overtake things or they're, they're doing, they're sort of the focus on occasion, but a lot of times it's, it's about building an atmosphere for these recordings. I cut out clips, um, maybe just a few seconds here, a few, a few seconds there of, uh, a few dozen of these recordings, not exactly to tell a narrative, like a linear narrative, but to give an overview of what this situation was, or at least as well as I could um, sort of feel it um, from listening to all these things in this in this archive. So I wanted to, I, I don't know, I guess maybe just shine a light on this, this moment in history. Um, and this is kind of a great uh, opportunity to do that when you have a you know a piece for a concert hall, um, you have a captive audience, and you can you know tell a story in a way, even if it's not a linear narrative kind of thing. You can tell a story, um, and people you know can really focus and pay attention to it. Um, and uh, yeah, I really wanted to do that with um, with this sort of thing. It became kind of like this patchwork, almost like a quilt, I guess, in a way of of uh, you know all these different clips of of different people's stories that I think, you know, when you sort of stand back and look at it, you get, a, a, I think, a good overview of, of what the situation was like for them, this very personal situation for them. Yeah, and, it, and it's so great how this issue is still an issue, <laughs> you know, yeah, of the yeah. of the uh, closing the borders down and, and this mm -hmm. sort of fear that comes along with uh, immigration of that, of that kind. And uh, mm -hmm. wow, really, really great and, and fascinating. Tell me again, so you said Library of Congress. How did you uh, originally, you said earlier, but uh, remind me, how did you come across this particular set of recordings? Well, I've spent a lot of time digging around on the Library of Congress website. It's an amazing resource. Is I mean, that, there's... I'm, I'm sorry, excuse me. Is that the uh, archive.org? Is that the one? No, no, it's actually uh, loc.gov. Yeah, there is so much stuff on there. And I think um, I think it's, it's just a... One of the really great resources in uh, for American history um, in general. There's just so much stuff, and and I mean a lot of it. I think a lot of it it's online, but a lot of it's just housed, you know, at the Library of Congress. And there's a lot of photographs and things like that. And I was already on there looking up things. I was looking up um, like diaries from the Civil War. So I just started poking around in other places. I mean, for me, a lot of times I find inspiration by just kind of poking around online, like yeah, surfing, yeah. surfing Wikipedia. Sure. Like sometimes if I get kind of bored, I'll just like randomly look up an article on Wikipedia and just start clicking links and learning about like, you know, different kinds of birds. And then I'm listening and then I'm, you know, then it's like, oh, sonar. And then it's, you know, just sort of jumps from thing to thing. And sometimes things will keep catch my attention and I'll just write it down and I've got a, a folder basically on my computer where I just, uh, I store all these random ideas and then when, you know, a commission comes up or something, I just sort through it and it's like, oh yeah, you know, that idea. Yeah. And, and how do you find out, so if I go, if I go to the Library of Congress and I find something, how do I know 
that it is uh, available to use, or you had to get some sort of special permissions, or how how are these in the public domain since they're from the 40s? It would seem to be not uh, uh, early enough for it to be public domain. So how do you get permission to... I'm, yeah. I'm sort of just as a practical question. Of course, yeah, yeah. No, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, in this case, um, because these recordings and photographs were commissioned by the U.S. government, they're public domain. Ah, okay. So it was actually the Farm Securities Administration that um, uh, that commissioned these people to, to do these recordings. So yeah, whatever work they created uh, immediately went to public domain. I see. Fascinating. Okay. Hi, everyone. Sorry to interrupt the show. I just wanted to drop in and ask that uh, if you are listening on iTunes, please do me a favor. Go back and leave a rating or a review. It helps people find and follow the show. Thanks. Okay. Uh, Well, that sounds like a really interesting uh, project. And it's actually part, if I was reading the the New Music USA page on this, maybe I can put a link to that on the on the show in the show notes but if i was reading that correctly yours is one piece of uh like a whole evening of this uh topic is that is that right am i was i reading yeah. that right yeah yeah that's right um yeah there's going to be a um a band called the hen house prowlers that's uh, more of a sort of bluegrass uh folk band um and uh, this is going to be i'm pretty sure this is going to be at constellation in chicago um and uh, from what I don't know specifically the other stuff that's going on there. I know there's some things arrangements or things inspired by Woody, Gu- Woody Guthrie um, as well, but it's it's going to be a sort of an Americana um, program. And um, Fifth House Ensemble has done some of this sort of thing before. They they have a really interesting approach, I think, in terms of making a really like a total audience experience. So one other aspect of this piece that I, I guess I hadn't even mentioned yet is that um, there's also going to be um, projection of uh, photographs from this archive as well. Oh. Um, so it'll be kind of a, it'll be a multimedia thing. It's not going to be anything too fancy. It'll just be probably like a slideshow sort of thing, but it'll be timed with the, with the music um, so that people can get that visual element as well. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit more, if you don't mind, about your piece, Long Distance. So that was the sure. one that I that I first discovered. And um, you you mentioned, you alluded to it earlier, This the piece is based on this kind of pre-internet geek kind of hacker subculture, uh, these people called phone freaks. So from what I understand, they were somehow hacking into payphones, uh, like maybe building little electronic devices or even, I understand, like whistling uh, tones into the... So they're able to like manipulate this old analog technology to be able to mm-hmm. like make free long-distance phone calls, uh, this kind of thing. <laughs> so I, I'd be curious to know how you found that. I mean, we, we you sort of mentioned earlier that just sort of poking around online, maybe maybe that's how you found it, but that would be interesting to know. And then um, how you uh, found these recordings uh, from the '70s of this of people doing this kind of thing, mm-hmm. and uh, so I'd be interested to know in anything about that. Yeah, sure. Um, I actually am a huge fan of podcasts, so I don't really watch much TV um, or anything when I want to, you know, relax or take a break. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and there was a segment on a um, Radiolab podcast. This is one of my favorites that there was a, a guy named Joy Bubbles. I think he legally changed his name to Joy Bubbles, who I think he was uh, blind actually, but he had this incredible uh, sense of hearing and was very good at whistling. And he actually figured out that he could whistle into the phone and make it dial different places. So, wow. um, uh, but there was a whole community of um, phone freaks. So freaks with a PH is the way they usually um, spell it. And it, it was these are the predecessors to computer hackers. So I started reading more and more into this, and I thought it was uh, just fascinating. They uh, they were I mean this is a very sort of um, you guess you could say like a really nerdy culture. I mean people people wanted to know about all the switches that were used at the phone companies, and they would memorize the sounds of different pieces of equipment so they could just listen to the static or listen to a uh, a dial tone or clicks and pops and be able to tell like exactly what equipment was being used. And it created this whole, uh, like, I mean, it's, it's basically like an online community before there was the internet or before it was easily accessible. I mean, this started in 
like the 60s. So when people were still using analog phone equipment um, and uh, they would have these like chat rooms basically where you could call a disconnected number and multiple people could call it and they could actually talk to each other. So it would just be a bunch of strangers in a room, like just voices, and they would like just talk to each other like, oh, hey, where are you calling from? Or where are you calling from? And um, so it, it, it built this whole community um, that – uh, like I mentioned, is is really a predecessor to like computer hackers. I mean, this is the same the same sort of attitude. It was people that weren't doing it to to gain anything personally. Um, I mean, they weren't like making money at it or anything, but they just wanted to explore and they wanted to see what could be done. And for some people, like in the case of Joy Bubbles, he was in Minneapolis, but he couldn't really travel anywhere. However, he had the phone and he could call Norway if he wanted to um, for free. So you know, why not explore the world a bit through the phone? Yeah. Um, so I thought that that idea was really fascinating, especially now that we have so much easy access to that. Like if I wanted to talk to someone in Norway, I could probably do it pretty easily um, or, you know, or learn about the, the world around me or even traveling is a lot easier. Um, so uh, one nice thing about this, though, is um, because this is such a, a nerdy kind of culture, which, you know, I would say like my my little subculture and you know modern new classical music or whatever is pretty nerdy too um uh they uh archive they recorded an archive thing so they would take real to real tape recorders and record um the sounds of payphones and just to like basically catalog the sounds of different machines um and uh, there are a few archives of that um uh, online as well um but uh, i i I think with with this one in particular, um, there isn't as much of a storytelling aspect to this. I mean, the piece is four movements. It's about 20 minutes long. Um, Each movement is named after the location of a payphone. So there's um, one that's in Atlanta, Georgia, Moreau, North Carolina, um, Brooklyn, New York, and Panorama, Virginia, which Panorama is actually just the name of a restaurant. They had their own uh, area code because it was in the middle of the Shenandoah um, Park. But um, the uh, I I wanted to – Basically, like sort of extract musicality out of these mechanical sounds because I maybe this is like influence of like reading or John Cage or sort of thinking about his ideas that you know really anything can be music. It's all about context. So a dial tone, if you just hear it on the phone, it's just a dial tone. That's all it is. But if you hear it in a musical context, it becomes something else. So in this case, you know, I wanted to take a lot of these very mundane or banal sounds and sort of explore or discover, uncover, unearth the musicality within them uh, and make something out of that. And so it made a lot of sense also to do this with percussion, of course, uh, but to do it with like keyboard percussion. This was this was actually a consortium commission headed up by Mike Truesdell and Tim Briones. And there were a total of 33 people involved in the in the consortium. So it was a, it was a big group. And uh, they wanted keyboard pieces, so vibes and uh, marimba. And I just thought, my first thought actually was that, um, uh, like vibes, it sounds kind of like a dial tone to me. Or yeah. marimba, it sounds a lot like you know when you press the key, it's that sh- that short sort of sound envelope. Yeah. Uh, it reminded me of of that instrument, and I thought that would be just a really great pairing. And a lot of this for me actually comes from my experience with electronic music in the first place. So either doing like sound collage sorts of things or improvised things or or just editing sounds, doing like sound design. I've changed the way that I think about sound because of the education and the experience that I've gotten in electronic music. The time will be 
Um, so that's a huge influence to me, even in just purely acoustic music. Like the idea of a sound object, you know, a dog barking is, you might think, uh, like picture in your mind a dog barking when you hear that sound. But it's also when you remove that, when you divorce it from its source, it becomes a sound envelope. It's a spectrum. It's, um, you know, it's a different thing. So um, I, I keep that in mind a lot when I'm just... I don't know, like I always have a field recorder with me when I'm traveling and sometimes I'll just hear something and record it and most likely I'll never use it for anything, but sometimes I do. Um, but there's, you know, kind of, there's music all around us. Yeah, that that's actually really interesting, this idea of a sound object and and sort of looking at a sound and, and getting its sort of spectral analysis and finding out, okay, what is it that makes a dog bark a dog bark, right? Like what, what frequencies are you hearing? You mentioned the, the envelope of it and, and all of that. That's actually really interesting. And it's, I mean, it's not necessarily a, a new idea. I mean, I remember there's a film that's on YouTube of, of Stockhausen talking about this exact thing, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and he was working with, you know, much, uh, a cruder technology in those, in those days, uh, than we have now for this kind of like, I, I assume for this kind mm-hmm. of like spectral analysis and all of the digital tools yeah. that we have now. So uh, so it's interesting and I'm curious to know how that informs your acoustic music composition. You said that you think about sound in a different way, but how does it actually change what you what you write? Well, I would say that in a broader sense it makes me understand the idea of the concept of, of like notation is simply um, a blueprint. Like it's kind of a rough guide. So a note on a page, it will produce primarily that note, but depending on what's playing it, like what instrument is playing it, or if someone's singing it, um, it's going to have different components to it. So for instance, um, if, um, if a violin is going to play a quarter note, um, it's going to start with bow noise. So there's a lot of noise in that sound. There's a, there's a scratchiness to it, and there's a certain envelope. Like when they attack, it's going to have that energy right at the beginning, whereas if you have like a clarinet, for example, if you have a pianissimo attack in a clarinet versus a pianissimo attack in a violin, it's going to be very different. A clarinet can actually sneak in from nothing, whereas a violin can't really do that, or it's very, very difficult to, to do that. Um, so there's uh, maybe just just thinking about the, um, uh, I mean I, I'm not like a spectral composer. I know a lot of people are really into you know analysis for um, you know recreating different spectrum and, and there's some really fascinating stuff that's being done in that realm. Uh, but for me, it's thinking more about noise, and I I, I would say that the easiest ensemble that. Uh, or the one that I'm maybe most comfortable writing for now is non-pitched percussion, um, because I just like I like non-pitched noise. I like to work with that, um, and uh, maybe it's because it's removing that element of of harmony. You still have melody because even with non-pitched percussion, there is you know um, there's register. You know, I mean, it's it does change if even if it's like paint cans. So you have to think about that. But there's there's something sort of stripped down about it that I think you're able to get. It's, there's some, some kind of rawness to it. Like you're able to kind of get to the heart of, of musically what you want to do without it being confused by all this, you know, harmony. Harmony, man. I just, yeah. I just don't want to deal with it. <laughs> uh, well, you're in good company. <laughs> uh, you know, I think as a percussionist uh, and uh, many of the people that listen to the show are percussionists and you know, we all, uh, what we do as as uh, members of that tribe, you know, we, we're always collecting sounds and we're always finding interesting sounds. And, you know, my collection of sounds, though, is really different from, some, you know, one of my colleagues. You know, I have cowbells, but mine are different pitches. Or, you know, I have these wood blocks that I got uh, in China or this gong from Vietnam, and it's different than your Thai gong, and which is different mm-hmm. from that Chinese gong. And, you know, mm-hmm. these rent, this set of wrenches that I have, well, they're not quite, you know, it's not quite A440, you know, but it's an A <laughs> sort of, you know, or whatever, yeah, yeah. you know. So we have these kind of collections. So it's it's really great to get to work with a composer who's interested in in that kind of uh, sound world uh, that then, you know, as a percussionist, I can go back to my collection of things and you say resonant metal or wood or whatever it is, mm-hmm. I can pull from all of these sounds and you get, you know, this really 
personal kind of sound, you know, uh, rather yeah. than just a, a generic, you know, marimba or a vibraphone or whatever. So, so that's great. I think, I think that's wonderful. And I'm glad you're interested in that. And I hope we get more, uh, more pieces uh, from you for this kind of idea. Yeah, I, I actually, um, just a real quick story that kind of, um, on that, on that line of thought, um, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago for the Truman State University Percussion Ensemble. And, um, they're, uh, and I don't know if you've heard them before. Michael Bump is their um, uh, director. Oh, sure. And, yeah, I know Michael. And, uh, yeah. And I just happened to be doing a, a residency like out in the countryside in, in central Missouri in uh, like the summer before the piece was due. And so I borrowed a car and drove up to, uh, it's not Warrensburg, it's uh, Kirksville, Kirksville, Missouri, and uh, met up with him and then looked in his studio. Because, I, I mean, that's what's inspiring to me is like talking to performers, of course, um, and getting a sense of their, you know, personal style or their approach to music. Um, I find that I, I spend a lot of time thinking about very thinking about specific performers in a specific place when I'm writing a piece of music. Um, but beyond that, I just wanted to dig through his, his cabinets and just see what they had. And I found these artillery shells, these spent artillery shells from World War II. And I, <laughs> I thought I've got to use these because they sound so amazing. <laughs> So the piece that I wrote was this, it was a sextet and three of the percussionists were up on the second tier in the, in the performance hall surrounding the audience, banging on these uh, artillery shells and swinging them back and forth to get the kind of woo, woo, woo effect, you know? Yeah. And, um, and like, that was what inspired, um, you know, the last like five minutes of the piece was just the sound of these amazing artillery shells. And I spent like four hours recording samples of every odd thing I could find in his studio. Yeah, um, great. <laughs> Great, great. Let's uh, talk a little bit about interdisciplinary collaboration. This is something that also that we have uh, kind of a common ground for the two of us. And um, I see that you have some current projects happening with with dance companies, and you're you're no stranger to collaborating across disciplines. And I've noticed that whenever I've had the opportunity to do this, that it always elevates my my work in some way. It brings a richness, a sort of multi-dimensionality to, to the music. And I wonder what, uh, what you like about working with other disciplines or maybe something that you've learned along the way in crossing over. Yeah, I've, I find it... Yeah, it's extremely gratifying, enriching, um, like like you had said before, um, especially working with dance. I really like working with choreographers, and perhaps it's because I have no training in dance whatsoever, but uh, uh, I... It, it's almost for me. It's it's like listening to jazz. Like I know a bit about jazz, but I'm not really a jazz player. So I can just listen to, um, you know, Coltrane, and I'm not thinking about like analyzing what he's playing. And it's hard for me to not do that when I'm listening to like chamber music or something. Um, but with dance, it's like I can just watch it and enjoy it, and I'm not really thinking about like the technique involved or or that sort of thing. Um, so there's that aspect of it, like being inspired by movement and movement is so it's a, it's a time-based art form as well. So like we basically choreographers and composers do pretty much the same thing in a lot of ways. Um, we just have a different language to just describe it. And I always feel like I learn more about what I'm doing through that, um, through that like translation process. Basically, I mean, like literally having to describe musically what I plan to do with something where, you know, music as as uh, dance as well, um, you know, is notoriously bad in terms of like terminology and all that. It's really hard to actually describe what we're doing. So we developed this whole, you know, sort of language around that. But um, another thing that I really like about working with dance and, and other um, disciplines as well is um, that. I'm not the composer with a, with a capital C necessarily, um, if that makes sense. So like in a concert music setting, let's say I'm like writing for orchestra, I'm the composer. And there's a lot of weight that comes with that, like, you know, this baggage of being a composer, which I think in a lot of ways it's, it's sort of to our detriment um, that there's this sort of idea of like lone genius or whatever. I mean, I'm just a guy who like sits down and goes to work every day and, you know, gets to play with sound. Um, that just happens to be the thing that I, you know, I'm not like framing houses, I'm pushing sounds around on my computer, you know? Um, but, uh, there's, 
there's a lot less leeway when you're working with other disciplines. So um, they may not understand how long it actually takes to compose something. So um, if I'm working with a, a dance company, like if, for instance, when I was in Cleveland, um, we were at rehearsal and um, as with a lot of um, choreographers and a lot of uh, like rehearsals for dance, things change a lot because it's it's almost like a choreographer and the dancers, it's kind of like a, a, a band in a way. Um, so you the choreographer is choreographing onto the dancers and it's not a notated thing. So like with composition, it's oftentimes not exactly set in stone, but it's like there's a thing on the page and you play what's on the page with dancers. Um, it's, uh, the choreographer might say, well, you know, do this over here. It's like, wait, no, actually try this and try that. And they'll run through it again. And so it's kind of like being in a band where it's like, you tell the bass player like, well, maybe try that line. And you know, you just sort of put things together as you go. Um, and, uh, and I, there was a, a, you know, decent sized section like a I don't know like a minute here a minute there where in the rehearsal like two days before the performance the choreographer is like oh, we really need this like transition material from here to here we need this other thing over here and if I were in a concert music setting and this was uh, for string quartet and the string quartet was integrated into the staging um, as well um, if I were in a concert music setting uh, I would think oh man writing like two days and writing three minutes of music for string quartet no way <laughs> like you know there's just like that's that's too much I have you know I'm, I'm an artiste I, I need my time uh, in this situation it's like there's no way around it like I understand that yes we do need this transition he's not just making things up to give me more work to do but it just has to get done yeah. so I have to figure out how to do it and how to do it fast and it's good um, when that all works out, um, <laughs> at least. So, so it's uh, yeah, it's it's nice to be kind of put under the gun. Oh, sorry, you can hear my dogs out there. That's okay. Um, <laughs> um, it's nice to get put under the gun and like to know that you can work under pressure. So I find that to be a pretty um, gratifying thing about that as well. Yeah, yeah. So well. I I have sort of an interesting. I don't know if it's a a question, maybe more of an observation. I I sometimes struggle to commit things to my like on my own compositions and mostly the compositions that I do are for me you know I'm writing something because I want to say a certain thing or do a certain thing and there's not a piece mm -hmm. that does that and so okay so I have to make this thing uh and I I have a real hard time sometimes committing things to paper and I was looking at one of the pieces that I wrote a few years ago and basically, it's a lot of my pieces are just sketches, you know. And I'll, I'll sort of, sort of as you described, working with the choreographers, I'll, I'll change things from, you know, change things from performance to performance, or, uh, you know, and they might be subtle things, but uh, I, I don't know. I have something about not wanting to uh, have it locked in to a to a certain thing. So what that means is that my music doesn't really get out for other people to play. It's just for me which I don't mm -hmm. think is a necessarily a bad thing, but I, 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 w I wanted to get your sort of take on this idea. Um, yeah, I, uh, I really um, like this approach as well. And I find oftentimes actually with interdisciplinary stuff, I'm the same way. It, it needs to be really flexible. So I don't commit things to notation as much unless, I mean, in this, in the case of the string quartet, yeah, I had to do it because it's a quartet. I mean, there's four people that have to kind of coordinate things. And I can have some degree of improvisation, like I had some box notation and things like that. But yeah, I've had kind of a weird experience with that recently where I wrote a piece for um, a choreographer here in Austin named uh, Rosalind Nasky. Um, and she and I have worked together a bunch before. And she's a, she always does solo stuff. Not always, but she does a lot of solo stuff. And it's just, it's I can't even really describe it. It's really fascinating. Um, but... Uh, I wrote a piece called The Land of the Living that we collaborated on together, and it was for Amplified Cactus and inter Interactive Electronics, which, you know, as a percussionist, everybody, uh, or I guess, you know, anybody who's, who's really into to new music will, will think, oh, Cage, of course, the cactus thing. Um, and maybe that was kind of the starting point, but I was playing around with this, and it's like, man, this is a really great instrument. I had contact mics on it. I had it running through Ableton Live and through Maxim SP, and it's like, oh, man, there's all this stuff I can do with it. I was bowing it, like bowing the needles and all that. Sure. And um, and so my score consisted of like six or seven post-it notes that I had on the table in front of me. I was playing the cactus like on stage. And then out of the blue, some guy in Italy contacted me. He's like, oh, I saw your video for this piece. I want to play it for this modern music festival in Milan. I was like, what? 
It's like, oh yeah, well, I you know, I noticed you didn't have like a the score for sale um, on here. You know how much how much would it would it be? It's like I, there's not a score, so I ended up writing up a graphic score for it. And strangely, I don't know how this worked out, but there've been like four or five people that have contacted me in the past like month and a half about that piece, huh. wanting to play it. So good thing I made a graphic score of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you know, for something like that, that, it makes a lot of sense because I want to see what people do. And actually, this guy that was in uh, in Italy, he's like, well, how much do you want for this? And I was like, you know, tell you what, send me a recording and a video of this. And I'm just fascinated to see what you do with it because I really don't know how this is going to turn out. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, um, but I, I love the idea of, of giving a lot of leeway to performers too, though, because, um, there's, there's just this sense of collaboration between composers and, and performers all the time. And that's maybe most apparent with percussionists because of just the instruments themselves. So if you're not writing for marimba or vibes or like timpani, like really standard instruments, you never know what you're going to get, you know, resonant metal object could be anything. So, um, uh, but even then, you know, working with, um, you know, a wind ensemble or, you know, any other kind of group. Like there's so much interpretation that has to go into that, that every performance is going to be different. And I always feel like it's a collaboration, even if I'm not physically present. Um, like I'm giving some loose instructions and basically giving them a blueprint of how the piece should probably go. But I, I use this sort of construction analogy. Again, I talk about construction a lot because that's what my dad does. He works in heating and air. And I did a lot of that when I was younger. Um, but uh you know, it's like I'm an architect in a way and I write up a blueprint, but I'm not actually running the wires through the walls. I'm not putting the plumbing in or hanging up the drywall. Um, somebody else with that that knowledge has to do that. Like, I'm not going to play the bassoon part. I don't know how to play the bassoon. I, I can give you some dots on a page that, you know, tell you pretty much what I have in mind. But, um, you know, you need to hire a, a plumber to come and actually run those pipes. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's always a team effort. And that's one of the things I really like about it. That's one of the things I love about live performers too. I mean, I love making sound collages and just doing stuff for myself, but it's, you know, it's a whole other level. It's really gratifying to work with, um, performers and have that kind of spirit of collaboration going on all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, I mentioned this on an earlier show, but Herbert Brun, the composer Herbert Brun had a really great, uh, saying about this kind of collaboration he called it a conspiracy you know and with the <laughs> with the root word being conspire to breathe so the idea of you know breathing together and working this thing together so i, I think it's a yeah. beautiful beautiful idea and uh yeah okay uh i want to make sure before we run out of time um i want to talk about the f festival that you run in sure. austin uh, the fast forward austin music festival Mm -hmm. So I'd be interested to know how you got that started and, and how things are going currently. Yeah. Um, so this started about six years ago, I guess. Um, so myself and Ian Dickey and Robert Hanstein, we all have connections to the University of Texas at Austin. And we, um, I never actually, um, I hadn't met Robert before because he, he did his master's there and then he uh, went to the East Coast. Um, but Ian was still around and he and I started our DMA together at UT. And um, uh, we started talking about a music festival and he and Robert had been talking about the same thing. Like there was sort of a niche to fill um, to have, uh, you know, new music, music by living composers outside of academia. I mean, there's, it's the UT Austin program is, is amazing. Like new music ensemble is really top notch. There's so many great performers and there's a lot of good stuff going on there for sure. Um, but, um, outside of that, um, there are some other organizations, but there was, there seemed to be like a, a bit of a gap that we could fill. And so, uh, we, sort of brainstormed and came up with this uh, uh, marathon festival kind of uh, bang on a can style thing where uh, we'd have eight hours of music um, in a place that um, number one most important thing that serves alcohol not because you know <clears throat> we're totally alcoholics but there's it sort of represents something there's a casual um, there, there's sort of a casualness about the uh, atmosphere when you when somebody can get a beer and go listen to a concert and then come and go as they please. So it takes place typically in like bigger rock clubs around town. Um, we'll bring in half of the artists are from uh, the central Texas area. Um, so basically all the main cities in, in Texas, um, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, Austin. And uh, and then half of them will be from other places, oftentimes like San Francisco or New York, uh, Chicago. Um, and uh, 
we just uh, make it a thing where we just have lots of interesting music and a lot of variety, interdisciplinary stuff as well, um, and uh, have a lot of really interesting guest artists. And um, uh, we do that every year. We have some satellite events as well. Like uh, this February, we're doing the um, uh, U.S. premiere of a violin concerto with the um, assistant concertmaster from the San Antonio Symphony, who's a killer violinist, like a killer new music player. Um, and uh, the conductor of the Austin Symphony, and then our own Fast Forward Austin Orchestra, and the piece is composed by Charlotte Bray, who's a British composer, who's, I think, in her early 30s. Um, so we put together some things like that as well. But, um, yeah, we just want to try to make as much new music happen here as we can, and it's a really good environment for it. Um, for performers, lots of people want to come to Austin, um, so we have no shortage of people you know, contacting us about wanting to perform. Um, and uh, we've been really surprised at just the caliber of, of players who, who want to come down and, and be a part of it. And then for audiences, too. I mean, like Austin audiences have pretty eclectic tastes and they'll take yeah. some risks on something weird. Um, and there's just this, this culture of like going to, to concerts all the time. So typically it's like indie rock stuff or, you know, country or, you know, Texas swing or something like that. But, um, yeah, the, the uh, culture here is just one of, of going to lots of concerts and checking out new stuff all the time. So uh, we've been really fortunate to get, uh, you know, pretty decent sized audiences as well. And um, it's been good. And yeah, we've got our another marathon thing coming up in the spring. We're going to have uh, Battle Trance. Uh, they're a tenor sax quartet. I don't know if you've heard them before. No, no. You should check them out. Battle Trance. Yeah, it's I can't even really explain what it is that they do. <laughs> they come from the jazz world, but it's very sort of minimalist and experimental, and I don't know, it's it's pretty wild. Um, but they're they're based in New York, uh, and then a few other groups as well. And uh, yeah, it's it's really exciting. It's just it's a great way to to kind of meet people in the new music scene all across the country, and then have them all sort of run into each other. Yeah. So wow. Sounds yeah. sounds wonderful. Well, I'm I'm sorry that I've been here so long and and haven't uh, been to one of these. I'll have to put it on the calendar and and try to make it down. It sounds sounds really terrific. Yeah, for sure. So I think we should wrap. And I always like to close these discussions by giving a simple simple question, which is how does one live and sustain a creative life? And you know, I would just be interested in how you've how you do this. And for you, I think it would be interesting as, you know, working as a freelance composer, I would be interested to know kind of your day to day and, you know, you enjoy the, the freedoms of not being uh, connected to a sort of a day job, like a, an academic job or something like that. And, uh, mm -hmm. but I would be interested to know sort of how's that working for you? And, uh, you know, are you interested at all in, in that academic job, you know, market or, uh, you know, cause I know a lot of composers are, uh, really, you know, doing the academic thing. And then some of them are really against it. And, and they think that is not a good thing for a composer to be doing that they should just be composing. So, uh, and I've had, you know, I've had different answers and different things on the show. So anyway, I'll throw it to you. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's see. Yeah. Kind of a multi-tiered, um, question there. Well, I'll start out with um, maybe sustaining um, a creative life. Um, or uh, for me, a lot of it's about just maintaining a um, level of curiosity about the world in general. And for me, that means variety a lot of times. So I'm very interested in uh, modern dance or art or um, you know reading or even like you know even I think there's some really well done TV shows um, out there that that I think are kind of inspiring. I know this is going to be totally nerdy to say, but I love Battlestar Galactica. I think that's an inspiring TV show. Um, but being open to that kind of thing, so um, you know just being able to look at the world um, from different perspectives all the time, and that helps to keep me interested in it. Otherwise, I think it would get burned out pretty quick. As far as the more practical kind of thing, um, I, I guess in terms of keeping motivation uh, in doing creative work, I mean, of course, it's thinking about money all the time. That's, you know, for better or for worse, that's just a big part of it. And um, being able to maintain that motivation, I would say especially early on, um, and I'm, I'm still pretty young. I'm 34, so I'm, uh, I'm still uh, mostly considered like a young composer, so I haven't been doing this, you know, uh, freelance thing for that long. But... I have to keep in mind that it's it's a big snowball um, that, you know, early on, like I might be getting some commissions, but it's not very much money or like I'm not getting as many performances or that sort of thing. But I found like the more that I 
build up my catalog of pieces, basically, the more music gets performed and the more people hear it and the more people want to commission things. And it just keeps building upon itself like that, which also means um, more uh, like performance royalties or score sales or things like that. So, I mean, I'm, I'm self-published. I have some things through some distributors, but I wouldn't want to go through a publisher for lots of reasons. But um the business end of things, that's a lot to keep up with. Like I write my own uh, commission contracts, um, depending on whether or not the ensemble already has one. But a lot of times I end up writing my own contracts for that or rental agreements or, um, you know, dealing with score sales and um, all that sort of thing. So that takes um, a lot of time. But I found that maintaining – here's a, like a great example is website. So I'm very meticulous about maintaining my website and I have a lot of material on there. And it took me a very long time to, to do that, like to, to get it all like the framework for it set up. But now that it's there, like I just plug things into it and it just goes. And all of the time that I've put into that has definitely I've, – I've gotten returns on all of that. Not necessarily always financially, um, but a lot of times financially. I mean people uh, you know, find my music or they, uh, they buy things, uh, buy scores or whatever. Um, but I know that that wasn't time wasted. So I have to keep that in mind. Like when I'm writing a piece and uh, if I break down like the number of hours that I spend writing a piece – by the uh, commission fee, it's you know usually pretty sad. It's not a whole lot of money per hour, yeah. but I've just got to keep in mind that that piece is going to continue. Um, it's an investment. It's an investment in time. So like the more it gets played, you know, it just there are returns on that all the time. So in terms of money, that's um, something that uh, uh, that I have to think about a lot, and just basically have just keep on keeping on, just keep my nose to the grindstone, and keep um, working and try to um, just kind of treat it like a, an office job or something. I mean, it's a creative thing and there are a lot of ups and downs and I still go through the same cycle of, you know, thinking that a piece is a pile of crap a third of the way into the process and then loving it and then hating it and then loving it and hating it and finally, you know, and then kind of liking it and then finally loving it one day and by the time I finish it, I go through the same stuff. But I try to maintain that schedule where it's like I get up and go to work and um, and try to find some kind of routine. Um, it kind of sounds like the, what is it, the, the steps of grief, like, uh, you know, denial, <laughs> I know, <laughs> bargaining, I know, <laughs> finally, I know. finally acceptance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, but, you know, the funny thing is, though, like, I'm aware, because I'm aware that that process is going to happen basically every time I write a piece, it doesn't bother me as much. Like, it is still um, draining. It's emotionally draining every time, but I don't have that impending fear of uh, that, that I've, I've written everything I'm ever going to write and I'm out of ideas. Like I know I'm not out of ideas. I'm going to come up with something. I just need to keep like, keep working at it and it's, it's going to work out. But um, as far as the academic thing goes, I actually really love teaching. Um, and uh, I, uh, about a year and a half ago, I was in Hong Kong. Actually, I was I was uh, um, like an assistant professor at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, teaching composition and theory. Um, I did a lot of teaching through um, my uh, master's and my doctorate as well. Um, I really enjoy it, and uh, I wouldn't be opposed to, you know, having an academic position. I think it's nice right now. I got very lucky when I finished my time up in Hong Kong. Um, I had just had a lot of commissions and things lined up that I knew I could. That, that could sustain me for a while. Uh -huh. um, and, uh, and I thought, well, I'm just going to ride this wave and just see what happens. Like, I know I can pay the bills for the next, you know, nine months or something. So uh, I'll just, you know, and then luckily, you know, more stuff comes in and, you know, I'm feeling the same way right now. It's like, well, I've got maybe about six to nine months and then uh, <laughs> beyond that, who knows? And we'll just see what happens. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I just have to keep kind of working at it with the faith that, uh, you know, something is going to happen. And, you know, I'm keeping my eyes on the um, sort of academic thing too, and you know, some positions might come up where it's like, well, yeah, maybe I should apply for that. That could be really interesting. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I guess the short of it is, uh, I really enjoy teaching, and I wouldn't be opposed to an academic position. Um, uh, you know, I kind of figure, you know, while I can right now, to to just write as much um, uh, music as I can, and just you know, sort of enjoy the the freedom of that. Yeah, terrific. Well, I just didn't know where you came down on the the academic uh, thing, you know. So, uh, yeah. but that's great. I, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, um, 
And I, I, I meant to mention that earlier that you had done some traveling uh, in the last couple of years. You Fulbright in Portugal and then uh, that teaching stint in Hong Kong. And I love, you know, one of the things that's really, uh, uh, that I find endearing about, uh, I mean, getting to know you and, and reading your bio is that, you know, I think uh, if, if anyone goes to your website after listening to this show and they click on the bio tab on your website, uh, and you say in the very first paragraph that you're a composer and performer who's not particularly fond of writing third-person formal bios. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. I just love, it's really great. And I like that, uh, you know, I think it's very clear, Stephen, that you take your works very seriously, and, and, and it's amazing and, and, and fascinating, but you don't take yourself so seriously. And I think that's a great lesson for all of us who are involved in this, uh, in the arts to, to take the work seriously, but not, not to take yourself so seriously. And that, that's really uh, nice to see. And I love the way you summed up your travel by way of food. Let's see. It was <laughs> tacos. Uh, what's the, uh, Portuguese, uh, it's like oh, a sandwich, uh, <laughs> Francesinha, <laughs> Francesinha, uh, dim sum, and then back to tacos. So you've kind of yeah. circled all the way back <laughs> to tacos. Yeah. <laughs> so what's your favorite taco in Austin? Next time I'm there, I'm going to, Oh man. Um, I love breakfast tacos. So my oh, favorite yeah. actually is, um, uh, I love making breakfast tacos too, but if I'm out, um, I love to go to Mi Madre's and, and actually, Robert Honstein is the one who turned me on to this. Um, he's a, a fellow composer. Uh, to get the vegetarian, vegetarian migas um, taco at Mimadri's and then add bacon to it. <laughs> vegetarian with bacon. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> okay, Mimadri's. It's going on my list. All right. <laughs> Okay. Well, Stephen, uh, thank you so much for doing the show. It was really great to talk to you, and I look forward to checking out your uh, your music as things continue to develop, and really looking forward to hearing that Voices from the Dust Bowl whenever that's finished. Hopefully, you'll get a, a good recording uh, of mm-hmm. that, and uh, yeah, all, all good things. So thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I, I had a lot of fun. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at thatjohnlane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music, You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.